Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. Uh, I may not know you. Uh, my name is Jackson. I'm the high school pastor, obviously. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a good night. I'm stoked to conclude the series with you. Um, <clears throat> I don't put the text up on the screen because I want you to look it up, uh, ideally in your Bible. <laughs> You're with me, bro, Josh. Let's go. Let's go. Or in your phone. So look up Genesis chapter 16 for me tonight. We're going to be in Genesis 16. Um, truly excited for this word this evening. Uh, did Tara teach last week? It's pretty good. It's real good like. You're like, yeah, we said it was good. Stop. Stop making us talk. I'm not. You're going to have to talk all night. So uh, if you thought you could just sit and observe, you're wrong. Okay. Dealing with the youth pastor here. <clears throat> All right, Genesis chapter 16, let's read. Now, Sarai, I'm going to let you guys know up front, I'm probably going to use Sarai and Sarah interchangeably on accident, so just show me grace when I do that. Their names change later in the story, and obviously Abram becomes Abraham. So if I th- get those thrown off at some point, just roll with it, okay? But the text says, now Sarai and Abram's wife had borne him no children, But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram's like, okay. Right? This is bizarre. We're in the Old Testament. A lot of weird things are happening in the book of Genesis. And this is one of them. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took his wife, her Egyptian slave Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now, if we're just like, Flipping open our Bible, like, I mean, I grew up, like, thinking it was really holy to, like, just uh, flip open my Bible and do my finger and think, like, that's God's word for me today. If you were to do that in this story, you'd be like, all right, Bible's weird, because it kind of is sometimes, right? So let me give some context here. So uh, this is also weird. At the age of 75, Abraham is promised a son, and through his bloodline, it says in the text that he would have this legacy, a family that's as numerous as the sands and the stars in the sky. And then through this bloodline, who would ultimately come? Amen. Good. You guys are well, well discipled. Who was your pastor? That's good. So 11 years go by. There's still no legacy. So Abraham, he's the father of our faith. Surely he's going to remain faithful, right? Just if you're not familiar with the term faith or you grew up in church and you use it all the time, but you're like, what does it actually even mean? I have it for you on the screen. Faith is the strong belief, trust, and confidence in God and his promises, even when those promises are not yet fulfilled or visible. Abraham's 86 now. Time is going by. He was old when he received the promise in the first place. Does he still have faith? Does Sarai also still have faith? Because it obviously takes both of them to see God move here. More context, this is 4,000-plus-year-old ancient text that you're reading. It's a different culture. So let's just talk about culture for a second. 
This is a different culture. This is not God. So when you read about wild things, these insane things in the Old Testament, just because if it's written by the Bible, it might mean that that's okay or cool or approved in culture. It does not mean that God is contoning certain behavior, even when it's God's chosen people. See, culture often is wrong. Oftentimes in culture, uh, we describe, what's another word we kind of use for culture? Can someone shout it out for me? Starts with, what is it? Tradition. Yeah, 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 that's good. That's good. I, I, think, I think a lot of ways, yes, there's a lot of uh, tradition and culture, but specifically um, what I'm looking for, that's, that's a really good guess. I could, I could see why you think that, but the world, we kind of say culture or the world, things separate from the way of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, culture, this is wrong, uh, it placed value on women only as high as their ability to bear children. Sarai could not have children. So therefore, she not only felt worthless, it's not like this was just an internal battle that she was fighting, culture also viewed her as worthless. So together they lack faith and they take God's promise into their own hands. Now, Theologians explain that using a woman other than one's wife, as we read about in verse 2, was a method, apart from adoption, of providing an heir in the case of a childless marriage. Now, read further with me on the screen. It was a serious matter for a man to be childless in the ancient world, for it left him without an heir. But it was even more calamitous calamitous for a woman to have great brood of children. Uh, And this was the mark of success as a wife. To have none was, oh man, Good God help me, I'm not going there. Ultimately, she's a failure. She was viewed as a failure. But to sleep with another woman, what she is suggesting, what Abram obviously went along with, isn't that extreme, right? Personal insight into my life. uh, When I'm reading things in the Old Testament or the Word of God, like I might say out loud at the table where I do my devotion, I say, this is weird. Like if my wife sees me doing that, she's obviously knowing I've arrived at a weird uh, place. text in the passage, right? So look at your neighbor. Let's just warm up for a sec. Look at your neighbor and say, this is weird. This is weird, right? This is wild stuff that we're going, uh, that's going on in the text here. Now, this is a good uh, Bible study lesson, however. There is a correct way to read the Bible, and there is a correct way to teach the Bible. And, uh, grasping God's Word, a book that Man, when you guys are ready to just go deeper, you don't have to read this book, but when you're ready to nerd out, man, a common approach to text is uh, examining the text as such as there is a river that separates this current culture from the previous culture. So you and I, through understanding culture and context correctly, we can build a bridge over that river and come to an understanding because God's word is never changing. It says in the word of God that the grass withers and the flowers change, but the word of God, it remains forever. It was true then, it's true today. Just because something is old does not make it more or less true. In fact, if it stands the test of time, that does make it more true, but we do need to interpret these texts correctly so that we don't use the scripture to manipulate people, which we've so often seen across centuries, or we don't want to misunderstand it ourselves and it affect our uh, sanctification or salvation process. So yeah, get help when you're reading text. That's why it's be important to be part of the family of God so that we're not left to our own devices and just making it up as we go. A simple way to do this is just read a Bible with commentary, especially in these moments. So let's make that bridge. Let's cross the river and try to figure out what's going on here in this ancient Eastern culture. 
So can someone talk to me? Um, what is a surrogate mom or a surrogate mother? Dude, anatomy and physiology at Eastern Florida is paying off for you, brother. Ultimate, I mean, I, that's right. That's right. You're not wrong. Yeah, that's good. Really, you're doing a good job. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. I asked you to explain it because that was, that was as good as I could have done. It's a woman who carries and gives birth to a child on the behalf of another individual or couple. I think Kim Kardashian and Kanye, this was, she'd actually carry the baby. Is this correct? Okay, all right. Is that what you were thinking? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So if you're rich enough and wealthy enough, you don't even have to carry your baby anymore. Someone else will form it for you. It's like, wow. So I just built a bridge for you, right? You're looking at this text of like, whoa, that's crazy. Actually, in a different way, we're kind of still practicing this surrogacy today. So what's the application though, right? What's going on here? The first application is this, is that may have been customary 4,000 years ago in Eastern culture. But just because something is customary, so just because something is normal in culture, it does not mean that it is good. Can I get an amen, somebody? See, when we as the church are holy people or righteous people, only righteous because of what Jesus Christ has placed within us, when we want to live different from culture or actually even at times uh, attempt to bring truth to culture, this is an offensive process because things are different. See, as a Christ follower, we don't believe that culture gets to define what is good, true, and beautiful. Why? Because Jesus Christ in the Bible has already defined those matters. Culture has different views on sexuality, has different views on gender, has different views on when life begins, has different views on purpose, has different views on meaning. So you and I, you can read me on the screen, we need to trust God's word over what is normalized in culture. See, this thing we're seeing in Genesis, it was socially and culturally acceptable. But we're going to learn that letting culture be our moral compass, it doesn't just hurt us, but it hurts other people. So we have some context now. Now let's get into the character that we're going to focus on so we can really kind of get into the heart of this series. And typically in this passage, you focus on Abram or Abraham, Sarai or Sarah. But tonight we're focusing on Hagar, an Egyptian-born slave woman, now unfortunately turned concubine. Now, Sarai's story is sad. That's a that, that's horrible situation for her, yes. But see, Sarai had no children, but Hagar has no choice and has no voice. So naturally, you can look in your Bible, it's verse 4. It says that Hagar began to despise her mistress. See, culturally and legally, Abram, you know he could have got a second wife? But Sarai is actually being manipulative here, all right? See, read this, or actually, you don't have it for me with you, so I'm going to read it for you. The mistress could then feel that her maid's child was her own and exert some control over it in a way that she could not if her husband simply took a second wife. She took her slave woman, her maid servant, and said, you sleep with this person, let her be a sur- surrogate. Don't go get a second wife because then we can have more ownership over this person. If it's one of the slaves, it won't feel like a new wife that I'm competing against. No, it will feel more like my own baby. That's something I never learned before until I studied this text deeper. But you know what the truth is? Hagar feels this is her baby. Why? Because it is. See, another thing, another new fact for you tonight, I think maybe, is that this is not Sarai's slave anymore. 
See, what was interesting, I thought Abraham and, and Sarah, they were co-owner of, of these concubines or maidservants and things like that. But the truth is, this person now belongs to Abraham. They're not co-owners. And so now, Hagar is now the slave of the master of the house. So, Hagar now actually feels a little empowered. Well, you know what? I belong to Abram now. I have more authority, so I'm going to go and kind of come at Sarai a little bit. So with that, Sarai, she complains and she blames. Let's read on in verse 5. It says, Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she is pregnant and she despises me. We're seeing the garden part too. And ultimately the text all the way up until Jesus Christ is man attempting to attain righteousness on its own works. But we learn time and time again that apart from Jesus Christ, we will always fail. That's why we need Jesus Christ. Here we are, just like the garden. Eve ate the fruit, and she blamed the snake for its craftiness. But just like Abram, Adam is not stepping up and taking responsibility. Here in this story, Sarai is frustrated and blames Abraham. But Abraham, he's been passive and going along with it the entire time. They are both sinners they are both messing up here and here's what's wild abram this is this is the sad part i think if we skim past this we don't see how horrific of a story this actually is abram gives hagar back to sarai right he's like okay fine i'm done with her now now she's your property again i'm hoping that your hearts are now growing in compassion for hagar This is unfair in every way. And the mistreatment begins to get so bad. In verse six, it says that she flees, but you have to consider she's not just running away and a woman that can survive her on her own out in the desert. She's pregnant at this time of life. Why'd she flee? It's probably escalating to the point where she's suffering physical abuse from Sarai because there's resentment. Polygamy is ineffective and don't, doesn't work and it goes against God's design, whether that's through an ancient culture or us practicing promiscuity. It is damaged to our souls and leads to the replication of pain. So once again, how does this apply to us? Let's cross the bridge. You need to realize and remember to not let a single sin spiral you into a pattern of sin. See, when we fall into sin with drinking or sex or porn or maybe we're trying to grow in the discipline of a healthy diet or exercise or we're struggling with procrastination, we fail, we miss the mark, we miss our goal, and we say, better luck next week or I'll wait until tomorrow for a fresh start. But if you don't mind... I'd like to quote the theologian, Apollo Creed from Rocky. Is that okay with you? There is no tomorrow. Can you look at your neighbor and say that? Say there is no tomorrow. There's not. No way. No. Here's some conventional wisdom, courtesy of Gretchen Rubin. There's something called the four quarters method. See, she views her day and views her life like this as in quarters. And if she has a poor first part of her day or a poor first Uh, or second quarter of her day, or a third quarter, she doesn't let that spiral into a horrible day and a bad day. She's like, you know what? We had a bad moment. We're gonna not let let that define our entire day today. So, like I said, that's just conventional wisdom. Like, that's a good thing, right? We can learn good things from the world, but you know what? Let's go even further. Let's actually let the word of God breathe upon this, because that's gonna be way more effective. It says in Ephesians that, It says that when you walk 
circumspectly, excuse me, not as fools, but as wise, you redeem the time. I love that. Instead of the NLT or NIV translations that say make the most of every opportunity, that's a beautiful translation. But what I'm talking to you right now is not letting your spin spiral into more sin. That's why I'm saying don't let the time escape you. In fact, redeem it. Take it back what Satan wants to take from you. Say, look, I made a mistake, but God's grace is for me. I can get this right. And Colossians says, is walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Hagar was outside. Abram and Sarai are supposed to be representatives of God, and they are misrepresenting him, and they're not redeeming the time. They're letting their sin spiral more and more out of control. So when you fail, when you slip up, you may have had a bad quarter of a day or a moment or whatever it is. Maybe you had a bad month, but don't throw away the entire game. Get right, repent, because like I said, God's mercies are new daily. And if he, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says that God sits on a throne of grace, not a throne of shame or condemnation or hate or anger, but grace. So therefore, we can what? Approach him with confidence. Because when you go to the throne, when you need to repent, see, that's what the beautiful thing is about confession. Unlike, yeah, you can clap. That's good. I'll, I'll receive, bro. Let's go. Amen. Amen. See, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's why confession's a beautiful thing, right? It's like, why, why are we weird about going to God and, and doing what Adam and Eve did at the very beginning of the garden? Why is it in our human nature to hide instead of going to God himself? I mean, because we have a mis, misunderstood view of God. Like, we, we don't view ourselves as the righteousness of Christ, which is who we are. And so therefore, we stay in these patterns and spiraling of sins. And then beyond that, if we can't go to God, who we already know is he knows everything, and then we still don't go to him for confession and repentance, then, like, I look at these co-ed groups or these guys groups or these girl groups, right? Are we all just, like, taking turns? Even myself included, I'm not coming at anybody talking about how good our devos are or bad our devos are. Is that the extent of our confession? I'm stumbling in my devo. Like, is that real talk? Is that really the hardest thing that's going on in your life? Or can we boldly, knowing who we are in Christ, saying, I'm going to expose this and get this into the light because I believe in what the Word of God says about that confession comes through healing, and I know who I am in Christ, so when I sin and when I mess up, I actually still know who I am, and I can bring these things to light so that I can have the restoration that I need. So on the screen, when you fail, repent quickly. And I say prevent failing. It's not bad to fight sin. Do it, right? Don't abuse the grace of God, but it, you will at times, obviously, as a human in the flesh, need the grace of God. But I say prevent failing by obeying quickly. This is how we redeem the time. My son Spencer, I tell him he's almost four in December, and uh, I'll give him instruction, and he'll just look at me, right? And it's like... We're like kind of having like a, a stare off. And I'll tell him, you need to obey me quickly. And you know what he said this afternoon, just this afternoon? I mean, I bet you could guess. Well, <laughs> not as dad. That's a really good guess. That's fair. You know my son? He said, why? I was like, well, there's this thing called boarding school and I'll send you away. <laughs> no, I didn't send that. Um, because I love you. And the thing I'm asking him to refrain from, the thing I'm asking him not to do, the instructions I give him, it's because I don't want him to hurt himself or hurt other people. Today, the thing I was asking him not to do is he was 
man, flipping over this chair over and over while he's watching Handyman Howell, who I can't take anymore, right? He's not so handy. In fact, his tasks are pretty easy. Anyone could do it. But Spencer's so impressed with the guy. Look it up if you'd like, or you have a nephew or niece that's already into it. And he's flipping the chair over, and he's like inches from his brother's head. And that's why I said, stop doing that. And he said, why? And you have to obey quickly, because he's not just going to potentially hurt himself, but he's going to hurt his brother as well. So Rai, she hurt, she hurt herself with a bad decision. Does she redeem the time? Does she repent quickly? No, she spirals. It gets more and more. She hurts herself, and now she's hurting Hagar as well. We are slow to obey because we fall into the trap. This is why we're slow to obey. Because we fall into the trap that we feel like God is withholding something good from us. Right? When he gives us instruction, when he gives us his commands, I think oftentimes we fail to obey because we think he's withholding something good from us. But you know what? I, I have that written down, but as I process that, I think, I think sometimes we just forget. Like in the middle of it all, like we just forget to obey. And the scriptures are full of saying, remember. That's why it's saying that it's through contemplation that you can transform into the image of God, right? So that's why, I mean, this word we say, do your devos, is so cliche in church, but it's so cliche because it's so true. Man, it says that you and I, when we contemplate God's word, that we are transformed into him. So, man, I, I yes, I, I think that you could fall into the temptation that Satan's withholding something good from you. I fall into that trap. But I think often it's because we simply forget who we are and what God wants us to do. But that's maybe why we don't obey. But maybe you and I, we repent slowly because we have shame and we think that God is going to withhold his grace from us. We don't obey because we think he's holding, withholding something good from us. But we don't repent because we think he's going to withhold his grace from us. So what do we do? We learn from this story. We learn from the text. Tonight we obey quickly. We repent, repent quickly. So I did not. Hagar has run away. She runs to the desert. And how long she went for and what was her plan, we don't know. But what we do know is God meets her there. It says in verse 7, please read with me. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She says, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. She answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Jumping down to verse 13, she says, you are the God that sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. See, up until this point, what were the only names used for Hagar by Abraham and Sarai? It's either slave or maidservant or maid. They never referred to her by her name. They just wanted her for what she could do for them. See, God intervenes. He was the first one to call Hagar by her actual name. So you and I, we're going to live from the labels we receive or the titles that we choose. And I frequently say and teach that our identity determines our activity. So what do you call yourself? And how do you view yourself? What's your thought life look like? 
You know, what's this conversation up here between you and yourself looking like? My question for you is this, is what's the truest thing about you? See, with Hagar, God calls her by her name. See, the culture approved of her living without her dignity. And Abraham and Sarah approved of leaving her nameless. But God says, no, you have a name. And for you and I tonight, we have a name and we have a father. And maybe for the first time in her life, she is seeing herself as God sees her, a person named and created in the image of God. She was born a slave and in uh, shame is graduated to concubine. But to this point, she felt the only time anyone ever looks her way as if uh, only when they needed something from her. But God sees her, names her, reclaims her. He says, you have an identity. Here is your dignity. I am restoring you myself. And she responds, you're the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. Dude, thanks for having my back. I'm glad someone's with me, bro. It's good. You might feel like no one sees you, but God sees you. He sees all the things you're going through, all the things that you are struggling with. He sees you. He sees all of you. You're fully known. You're fully loved right where you're at. And he will meet you in your place where you feel most alone. God sees people. He sees you. See, there's this really respectable organization, and they have this really cool billboard campaign going on right now, and it says, you're not a burden. It's on 95. It's on I-4. It says, you're not a burden. And that's beautiful, and that's true. But it's not enough. We need to know that God sees you and God loves you. John Eldridge, he says that the soul longs for a father. And I think that it's so easy as Christians. We talked about the things that we overcome. But we're so hesitant to reveal the things that we're going through. And... And I'm going to really do my best to not get too emotional so I can articulate this for you. But, man, an ongoing battle that I have that I tell myself, it's time to move on. It's time to be healed. Can't stay here anymore. Like I tell myself, I know the truth. I'll get prayer is my relationship with my earthly father. Like, thank you. When John says the soul longs for a father, it's because it does. We need what Hagar received. I see you. I know you. I love you. And I feel pressure at times as a pastor, and you might feel pressure at times as a Christian, like, to be healed. You know, like, we know what the Word of God says, and we know who we are. And there's things that we're still fighting with, and it's frustrating. And so, man, I wish I was up here about this thing with my dad. Like, man, I I have a very privileged life, you know, is that, like, maybe the worst thing in my life is the fact I never heard my dad say he was proud of me. And like that pain is personal. Like we all have been through different things, you know? I'm not up here 
with a testimony saying I'm past that. Like that still is something that I carry that I'm not healed from yet. But I'm up here preaching to you from a place of faith in God that he's not done with me in this healing process. And I think that that's, that's such a word from the Lord. It's like you're in here sometimes with shame and doubt and anger and frustration. And, and Tara taught last week about Hannah, this person that just dealt with some unanswered prayer. But we're not going to lose our faith in God. I think about Daniel in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when Nebuchadnezzar threatened them, said, you're going to burn alive. We're going to kill you. We're going to throw you in this fiery furnace. They said, my God will redeem me. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to stop worshiping the Lord. And the thing you're fighting and the thing you want healing from and the thing you want to overcome We're still, like, even if we don't feel it, even if we feel like we're not there yet, we're not going to give up and we're not going to stop having faith in God that he's not done with us in the healing process. There are some beautiful things. Man, God has instantly healed me. He's instantly taken things from me. But there are things in my life that has been a process. You know what I mean? It's like sometimes we have instant healing and sometimes there's lifelong journeys that we walk and abide in the Father through. Man, I think about Hebrews 9 talks about that the Lord's coming those, for those who are eagerly, eagerly waiting for him. So it's like, man, maybe the goal is not always to find complete healing from certain things on this side of heaven. Maybe the goal is that we are people that are looking forward to Jesus coming back. Can I get an amen, somebody? Amen. See, we need a deeper restoration. Hagar needed a deeper restoration. And the soul can only be saved when it's redeemed, restored, and made new by the Father. See, I am seen, and when you have been seen by God, you don't feel the need to be seen by people. Read with me on the screen. It says in Second Chronicles, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You've only done foolishly in this. From now on, you will have wars. See, in the midst of the crowd, Jesus, he would see people. Huge crowd. He sees Zacchaeus up in a sycamore fig tree. In the middle of a crowd, Jesus would feel people. A woman who was shamed for the past 12 years simply touches her cloak, but it doesn't go unnoticed or unseen by Jesus Christ himself. In the center of town wells, he would observe people. A woman who's looking for a relationship to do what only God can. Jesus in this story, we see God himself, he sees people. And tonight, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just see you, but he's next to you. And if you're a Christ follower, he is within you. So here's the hard question you have to ask yourself. Is that enough? And it might not be. You might be saved, and being a son or a daughter is still not enough for you. I think that's possible. If there is a great discontentment, if there is still a deep longing, even though you're a child of God, then I think that there's some work still to be done. You're loved by God so much that he sent his one and only son. You're seen by him, but sometimes being seen by him is not enough. 
And Paul warns the church at Galatia, read me on the screen. He says, earlier, before you knew God personally, you were enslaved to so-called gods that you had nothing of the divine about them. But now that you know the real God, or rather, since God knows you, how can you possibly subject yourselves again to those ten gods? Like, this is crazy for the Christian. This is crazy for me because I do this. This is for me. This is relevant today. We're known by God. God, yet we still seek out worthless, graven images made by human hands. So listen, I'm going to have worship come up. We need to let God's love, his approval, him seeing you, not just be enough for you, but be all that you need. A huge part of my testimony, that's a lot less sad, so let's not go there. Um, But another part of my testimony is... uh, when I was single and lonely, can I get an amen, somebody? You know? And I really wanted a certain relationship to work itself out. But the Father in his sovereignty knew that's not what I needed. And I'm reading the Psalms. I'm grieving with the Psalms. I'm understanding the Psalms, reading this journal. And uh, I'm just connecting with all the sad parts. And then I get to what I think is another sad part. And you could read with me on the screen. The psalmist writes in that first passage, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And I pause there. I'm like, yeah. God, it's just me and you. Life's lonely. Life's hard. We're never going to find love, Lord. It's just me and you. Thank God I have you, Lord. But then the psalmist, he celebrates. And he says, earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist says, God, you're all I have and you're all I want. And I think that you and I, you guys can please stand. There is a level of peace and contentment and trust and celebration and joy that you and I can have just like Hagar, she worshiped. She said, I'm seen by God, he sees me. God always saw her, but she finally recognized it. So if there's a discontentment within you and you're a Christian, I pray that you worship it out of you right now. That you ask God to help you and to restore the joy of your salvation. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.